0: So we're 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to go from verse 10 and finish the chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians 16, really, um, we're getting Paul's final instructions to the church at Corinth. And as we know, Paul will write a second letter, but as far as he knew right at this point in time, this was going to be his final instructions to them. And if you think about it, we should ask a question, why should we really even care about what Paul's specific instructions to a church that's long since been instinct? Instinct? No. Extinct. Why should should we care about that? And you know, there are people even in the church today that say, yeah, you know, why should we pay attention to a bunch of ancient letters written to different churches? Believe it or not, in the Christian church today. But we need to pay attention because in every letter that Paul wrote, and this was certainly no exception, there are general principles that remain true for the church of today. And guess what? They're going to remain true for the church as long as the church is still on earth. Until God takes the church out at the time of the rapture, all of these principles are going to remain. So we not only need to pay attention, but we need to pay attention close attention to what Paul has to say to the Corinthians to see what we are supposed to learn from that. And the overarching principle, and really it has been for the entire book of 1 Corinthians, but for the two-part message is do everything in love. So we're going to start in verse 10 here. Hope you're there and uh, follow with me here. Verse 10, Paul says, now if Timothy comes See that he is with you and without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, and if you looked in the NIV, it would say no one should refuse to accept him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Now, why did Paul even have to say this about Timothy? It's kind of interesting. Why would he have to explain this and give this encouragement here? And we need to realize that at this point in time, Timothy was still a pretty young guy. Most scholars believe somewhere in his very early 30s. Now, that may not seem young to some of you, um, but in terms of leadership in the church, that was quite young uh, to be a leader in the church. And not only was Timothy still young, he was a pretty timid guy. Apparently, he lacked confidence, and Paul had to speak to him more than once um, about this. But, you know, that lack of confidence might have been justified by the way he was being treated by some people in the church. But Paul wants people to know, in no uncertain terms, that Timothy is doing the work of the Lord. And he says, even as I am. Now, that's pretty amazing when you think about it, to say Timothy's doing the work of the Lord even as I am, because Paul was an apostle. But Timothy is doing that work. And so he should be treated with the respect that's due to a person who is doing the work of the Lord. So this is principle one here. We want to ask ourselves a question here. Have we ever refused to accept a person because they're young? A person who is doing the work of the Lord, but they may be very young. And have we refused maybe to follow along with the program that they're leading or the teaching that they're giving because we look at them and and we say, well, they're too young to know anything. And have we ever been disrespectful to a younger teacher, a younger leader in the church? Now, I want to be really clear here because it doesn't mean that we're to listen to any young person who thinks they know it all. And starts, you know, teaching in the church. In fact, it's really quite rare that a person would have the responsibility at the age that Timothy did in the church. But we need to understand that Timothy grew up in the faith. And he was recognized by the Apostle Paul himself as one who had been gifted by the laying on of hands. And I believe the gift is teaching and you'll see that. If you would, turn over a little bit to your right to the book of first Timothy first Timothy chapter 4 in first Timothy chapter 4 starting in verse 11 this is Paul speaking to Timothy he says to Timothy prescribe and teach these things in verse 11 verse 12 let no one look down upon your youthfulness but rather in speech conduct love Faith and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and notice, to teaching. And then Paul says in verse 14, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance. Now notice this, two things happened. There was prophecy, prophetic utterance, And with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. That just means the elders, just like we would do here at Living Truth. And then he says to Timothy in verse 15, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. And pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure Salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. So, when we recognize a young person who's been gifted by God, who is mature in their faith for their age, we should not refuse to accept that person as a leader in the church. And here at Living Truth, we have a few of those young leaders, don't we? And we see God's gifting in them. And we should treat them with the respect... That's due to a person who is a leader in the church, no matter what their age is, when they have been recognized by the church. So that's the first principle Paul teaches here. Now, next, Paul's going to move on to this guy named Apollos. Verse twelve. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encourage him to greatly come to. You, I encourage him greatly to come to you, with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now but he will come when he has opportunity. That's kind of interesting. It's like, well, why doesn't he want to come? And we're not really sure why Apollos left uh, Corinth in the first place or why he didn't want to come back at this time. We can't say for certainty, but I think we can make a pretty reasonable assumption as to why that was if we really look at who Apollos was. If you remember all the way back in chapters 1 through 3, Remember that Paul had to rebuke the Corinthian church because they were saying, Well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos. And they were following one teacher over another. And in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, For one says, I am of Paul, and the other says, I am of Apollos. Are you not carnal? In other words, when you start doing that with teachers, we're really carnal Christians. And he tells them that it's Christ that they're to follow, not one particular teacher or another. Now, he's not saying that we don't follow the pastor of our church. But at that time, there were other teachers who were coming from town to town. And so people were picking and choosing, well, I'm of this teacher and I'm of that teacher. But Paul says, no, it's Christ you're to follow. And if you're not just following Christ, you're carnal. And I would say... Wow, do we need to hear this message in the church in America today? I will tell you that I'm, I'm really tired and, and actually disgusted at what I consider pastor worship today or celebrity pastor status. And, you know, it's kind of easy to get there today because of all the technology. You can be on Facebook, you can be on YouTube, you can be on the television. You can be on the radio, and, and I hear people, you know, do this all the time, and, and they literally worship a pastor, and they will not want to listen to anybody else. Every time you might say something that's scriptural, they're like, yes, but, I almost said a name, but I'm not going to, says to that point where they're only listening to one pastor or one teacher because that's, that's their celebrity. That's the person that they listen to. And I want to say to you, never think that one pastor has all the answers. Never follow just one teacher. You need to listen to other teachers. You need to read people who comment on the Scripture in more than one way. And that includes Pastor Michael or myself. And I know he would say the same thing. Look, we need to be Bereans. We need to study on our own. We need to listen to more than one person and let the Holy Spirit be our teacher because it's only the Word of God that has all the answers. And the Word of God tells us to follow Jesus, not one teacher or another teacher. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Back to Apollos. Now, we know that Apollos was a gifted teacher. But, you know, here's what's great about him. He was humble enough to receive instruction from this married couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. He actually humbled himself and listened to the instruction they had because he didn't know everything at the time. He didn't understand the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and they did. And he listened. You can go back to Acts 18 if you want to read about that. So... Apollos, even though he was a gifted teacher, was a humble guy. And I think it's very reasonable to assume that maybe Apollos did not want to come back at the time Paul was there, because the last time that happened, there was this disruption and people following one teacher or another, and I think it's very, um, very possible that he didn't want to be there the same time Paul was, because he he just deferred to Paul and let Paul be there and do the teaching at the time and maybe he would come at another time. And then Paul, just as he did earlier, he shows great respect for God's calling on Apollos' life by encouraging him to come back to Corinth. And so we see on both ends of the spectrum here a respect and and, uh, deference to one another. And I I can't say for sure, but I believe that was probably why Apollos wasn't there at the time. So now we're going to hold off on verses 13 and 14 till a little bit later. So follow along with me again back in verse 15. And Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Icaea, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice, verse 17, over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Icaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. So again, Paul's, you know, doing some personal stuff here, but it has principles and application for us here. And and I think this one is particularly interesting. Because you see these men, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Icaicus, they were the first converts in this particular area of Greece. The first fruits, Paul says. And they were baptized even by Paul himself. And remember, Paul didn't make a big deal about baptizing people. But these guys were baptized by him. And they had totally given themselves over to the ministry of the Lord. So Paul says that you should be in subjection. But what's really interesting about this is it appears that Stephanus was most likely the ruler of a household. And guess what? Icaicus and Fortunatus were probably slaves in his household, or they may have been bond slaves that had been freed, but then voluntarily decided to stay with their master, Stephanus. And, and we believe that because of their names, they were very common names used for slaves in that particular time. So Paul is actually saying to people in the church at Corinth that, look, I want you to be subject to these Guys who are doing this work in the ministry. Now, for a Corinthian, a Greek, and if you know anything about the Greek culture, they were very prideful in their education, their knowledge, um, their status in society. And Paul's telling them, you guys need to subject yourselves to these slaves or former slaves. That wouldn't have been easy. For a Corinthian to do, but yet Paul says to do that. And, and I, I just love this because it would be so unnatural for a person in that church to subject themselves to, to one like that. But see, it just shows you that in the church of Christ, things are different. In Galatians, there's two verses. You could turn there real quick if you want to, Galatians uh, chapter 3. In Galatians 3:28. Paul says this There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then back in verse 26 of Galatians 3, he says this For you are all sons, meaning sons and daughters, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so, if we follow Paul's teaching for a Corinthian, they would have to go back and look, well, this is what Paul wrote. We're, we're in the same status when we're in Christ. And therefore, if Paul says that we're to be subject to these uh, men, then we need to be subject to these men. That wouldn't happen in normal society, in secular society. But things are different in the church. Now, the question comes up, and, and I would say this is a big question, and oftentimes controversial question in the church. What does it really mean to be in subjection to the leaders of your church? And the reason I say it's controversial is because, as you well know, we have seen so much abuse of authority in the church. Amen? We've seen so many things happen. We've seen cults begin. We've seen people who uh, have given everything they have to certain church leaders and then find out that they were dishonest and corrupt. And so it's a good question to ask. What does it really mean that I am in subjection to a leader of the church? Well, the word in Greek that's used here is hupotasso. And and I want you to listen to Thayer's definition. Again, I, I go through several Greek definitions, but this was very definitive here. Thayer says this, it means to arrange under or to subordinate, to subject, to put in subjection, to subject oneself, to obey, to submit to one's control, to yield to one's admonition or advice, to obey or to be subject. So all of those things. Now, there are a lot of commentators that when I was studying on this really kind of made it um, less stringent than the definition of the word. And I think sometimes they're afraid to say, but this is what the word really says. That sounds like, wow. You know, put myself in subjection to obey, to submit to another person's control. And of course... As Americans, we're not usually too good at that, are we? We don't like to put ourselves under someone else's control. This country was founded on people who were rugged individualists, so to speak. So it kind of rubs us the wrong way. But this is what the word actually means. Now, it's interesting, this same word is used in Hebrews. You might want to write this down, look at it later. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, For this would be unprofitable for you. So there's a couple of key words that I think really help us here. One is, for they keep watch over your souls. And two is, they will give an account. So remember, all of your church leaders are being held to a higher standard than you are. And you know those church leaders that we've watched fall or get called on the carpet for their practices and that? I don't want to be in their shoes. Oh my goodness. Because God is going to hold them accountable for the things they've done. And if they've been dishonest and they've been corrupt, God's going to hold them accountable. I think about two leaders, and I'm going to say their names because I think it's important. Many of you have probably heard of Joyce Meyer. Some of you might even read her books. And, of course, I think pretty much almost everybody has heard of Benny Hinn. Correct? Nod your head so I know you're paying attention. Yes, yes, okay. Well, very recently, both of them have come out and denied the doctrine of the prosperity gospel that they've been teaching for many years. Did you know that? Both of them recently have come out and said that. And I applaud them for that. I'm so thankful. One of the things I've been praying personally, you ought to pray too, is, God, if the people in the pulpit are not teaching your word the way it's supposed to be taught, then do one of two things, change them or get them out. And I'm praying that for our entire country. Pull these guys out that aren't teaching the word of God or change them. And then I look at these two people and I'm like, wow, Lord, that's an answer to pray. Now I hope that both of them are willing to put their pocketbook where their mouth is and make amends as much as they possibly can for the people they've stolen money from in teaching that gospel. But I'm thankful for that. But they have to give that account before the Lord. Now, of course, there's forgiveness for all of us, right? And if they've truly repented, then praise God. They're forgiven. But that's what your leaders have to face, the accountability to God, and and to know that they watch over your souls. So I think we want to keep that in mind. But I think also we need to keep in mind that this has to do with matters of, of faith, of doctrine, and issues within a church. That's where their leadership is it doesn't mean that they should control every aspect of your life. And in fact, when that happens, what do we normally call that? It's a cult, that's right. When, when the pastor is telling you, look, you know, the Bible says, and they may have good verses to share with you, good practical things about how we're to stay holy and be set apart, but then the pastor tells you, don't go watch this movie, don't go do this thing over here, um, no, you can't marry that person. When those kinds of things start happening, when it gets this, to this personal part of your life, uh, the pastor is stepping in where he should be allowing the Holy Spirit to work. Our submission to a leader in the church goes as far as the Bible allows it. And the Bible's pretty clear in several areas of where the pastors or leaders should have uh, authority uh, in the church. Now, I think it's really interesting, this same word, hupotasso, in the Greek, um, if you wanted to, real quick, you could uh, flip over to Ephesians 5.21. Now we know Ephesians, well, what do we normally think about in Ephesians 5? Come on, some of you have been in my premarital counseling. What do you think about Ephesians 5? What's it for? It's, It's the marriage chapter, right? And it talks about submission in there. But right before it talks about submission to marriage, in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, it says that we are to submit ourselves one to another. And it's that word hupotasso. So that's not talking about just with church leadership, it's one to another. So the other aspect of this word that's important for us is is it's not only being under someone, but it's just giving deference to the other person because of our love, one for another. We are to submit one to another. So when you're in a situation and, and maybe there's a disagreement, you might go, you know what? I'm going to tasso you. <laughs> I'm going to submit to you in this situation because I care about you. I want to put your needs first. And you know what? My needs aren't that important, so I'm going to give deference to what you need. So it's that same word, and I think that helps us to understand where this authority lies. Interestingly enough, when we continue on, where it says wives be subject to your own husband, and by the way, uh, the men that are here, you can tell the guys when they get back, that doesn't mean that all men have authority over all women in the church, not at all. To your own wives. And why? Because the word in Greek for subjection there is not hupotasso. It's actually, you're going to like this, it's actually idios. It's idios. You're laughing because your first thing was idios, idiot. So when I was sharing a little bit with my wife on this, she goes, so I'm supposed to be an idiot for you? No, no, no. It means you're supposed to submit to the idiot. I think that's really what it means, but just kidding. But that word actually has a, a meaning of private submission. Of private submission. You see, it's a different kind of submission to authority than in the church. In other words, when a husband and wife, and it's working properly, and he's loving her the way that he is supposed to, as Christ loved the church, and she is submitting herself to him as directed by Scripture, it can be private things. It can be, honey... No, you can't do this. I'm sorry. As the spiritual leader in this home, I'm accountable. And and so this particular thing you can't do. See, it has a private connotation, not the same as a spiritual authority in the church. Now, another important part of this is because we are told to submit to the leaders in the church, we should make sure that we're looking for leaders who meet the qualifications that Jesus himself set down. Now, we know that there's qualifications um, that Paul lays down as well. But what were the first qualifications that Jesus set down? Number one is if he's to be a leader, what's the first qualification and foremost qualification that Jesus laid down? They must be a what? A servant. That's right. You know, when you look at some of these leaders that people have submitted to in the church, you know, who have hundreds of people around them catering to their every need. You don't see servants. You see people who have elevated themselves. You want to look for leaders who are servants and who do not lord their authority over the people that they are leading. But they have care and concern the way that Jesus did and serve their flock in that way. And when that's the case, it is like a wife submitting to a husband. We look at that person and we go, hey, if if I am doing something wrong in the church and that leader comes to me and says, hey, you need to get this situation squared away, I can easily submit myself to that, that leader. And again, we need to be like the Bereans. We need to know the word so well that if we see a leader who's telling us to do something on scripture, on biblical we're going to know that, and we're not going to submit ourselves to that. That's what it means to submit to church leadership. Now, I want to go back to verses thirteen and fourteen because they are really the key verses in this chapter, and and somewhat for the whole book of Corinthians here. And so, I'm going to start in verse thirteen. If you're back there now, verse thirteen, Paul says this. He says, "Be on the alert." Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Don't worry, ladies, I'm going to get to that third one in a minute here for you. It's like, what? But you see here that Paul gives four commands. What's interesting about these commands that Paul gives is each one of them is a military term. Each one is a military term. And that should remind us of something. And that is, we need to always consider ourselves as part of God's army. We truly, literally are soldiers for Christ. And so, Paul uses military terms for these commands here. Now, the first one here in Greek, well, I'm not even going to say the Greek word because I can't hardly pronounce it. Um, But what it means is to keep awake, to watch, either literally or figuratively, to be vigilant To be watchful. And metaphorically, it means give strict attention to. Pay attention. Be cautious. Be active in your paying attention. Um, One of the commentators says it this way, and since this is kind of King James English, I'll revise it in a second, but he says this. To take heed lest through remission and indolence some destructive calamity suddenly overtake one. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, what he's saying is, you really need to pay attention because if you're not, if, if you're not paying attention or you know, you're not following what you see, something bad is going to really happen. Something may overtake you that you don't even realize. And so what it's really saying is, we need to be on guard that we're not overtaken by sinful things. And in our society today, how easy is that to do? I mean, my goodness, you can watch 10 minutes of television and be overtaken by sinful things. You can't even watch a commercial these days without going, whoa, where did that come from? I don't watch hardly any, so I don't even see that much. But, you know, if I watch a football game, a commercial comes on you. This is as evil as evil gets right in front of you here. We need to be on guard that we don't get sucked into what that evil is that we see or hear. We need to be aware. We need to be on guard. And we also need to be aware and be on guard of false doctrine. There is so much false doctrine going on in American churches today. It's, it's overwhelming to me. And, and I believe that much of today's church is asleep. They're not awake. They're not paying attention. And they are being overtaken by calamity. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible's taking a backseat to people's feelings. And to the winds of the culture. And when that happens, you're going to be overtaken in sin. The gospel is so watered down in many churches today that that I guarantee you there are thousands and thousands of people sitting in a church every Sunday that think they're saved, but they're not. They don't even know what the true gospel is because they aren't hearing it in the church they're going to. They don't hear about repentance don't hear about having to turn from their sin in order to come to Christ. They may hear Jesus loves you. And, amen, Jesus loves you. And He loves you so much that He wants you to turn from your sin and turn your life over to Him. So, people are sitting in churches, they're trusting in this Jesus that's been conjured up either in their own mind or in the mind of the person who is standing behind that pulpit, not the Jesus of the Bible. In fact, false doctrine has so permeated the church today that true biblical Christianity is looked upon as hateful. It's hate speech, right? If you say what the Bible says, you're now being accused of spouting hate speech. That's how far we've gone. Why? Because the church has been asleep. We haven't been aware. It's gradually crept in more and more. And so that's what we see in a lot of the church in America today. 2 Timothy 4.3 Certainly true today. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. In other words, because they don't want to hear the truth of the gospel, but they want to hear things that make them feel good, they're going to find the teachers that teach that. Lord, help us. We need to wake up. And you know what's really interesting? And I know for a fact that there are people sitting in this church who know exactly what I'm talking about. Those feel-good messages, those I probably shouldn't get too technical here, but those 30-minute sermonettes where you walk out of there going, oh, wasn't that lovely? I feel so much better than when I walked in here this morning. How long do they last? To the parking lot. Yeah, when someone almost runs you over getting out of the parking lot. And all that feel-good stuff. And I know for a fact here at Living Truth because... When I first came to Living Truth, I've told you this before, the the Lord spoke to me and gave me a message to give to Pastor Michael, which I almost refused to give him because I thought he'd think I was weird. Then he, of course, figured out I was, but it was okay. (laughs) That many people were leaving those feel-good churches because if you remember, when we hit the recession and people were losing their houses and losing their jobs and going through all kinds of troubles, those feel-good messages didn't do much for them. And some of you came and left those churches where you're receiving that to get the Word of God verse by verse, line by line, precept upon precept, because it's that constant feeding of the Word of God that gets you through those tough times, not those feel-good messages. And then I think about it and I go, but what, what message could you possibly give that would make you feel better than the true gospel? That God loves you so much that even though you are a sinner, you're in rebellion against Him, He sent His Son, God in the flesh, to die for your sins so you could be in relationship with Him for all eternity. What message could you ever hear that would make you feel better than that? I know for me, there's no message I could hear that makes me feel better. And when I'm in a tough time, I go right back to the fact that Jesus loved me so much, He hung on the cross and died to pay the penalty for my sin, and I can't think of anything worse in life than not having a relationship with Him. If there was anything in this world that would scare me, it would be to not have that relationship, where I couldn't go to Him and pour my heart out to Him, and remember how much He loves me. No message is better than that. Well, the second command, military command, is steko. Um, It's actually pronounced steco, and that's good because the word is stay. It means to be stationary to persevere, to stand. And what he's saying is that those of us that know the truth of God, we need to stand fast in that truth. And and that's what I'm telling you this morning, and that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm going to stand fast for the Word of God, not the winds of culture. We must not compromise God's Word, no matter what it costs us. Because the tendency and the temptation for us is because we don't want to turn anybody off, we have a hard time speaking the truth and love to them. But we have to stand fast for the gospel. And ultimately, even if it costs us a relationship, even if it costs us a job, whatever it may cost us, if we know the truth, we must stand fast in that truth. That word is is a strong word. We must stand on the rock of our salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just stand, it's stand in the faith. And what does that mean, in the faith? Well, when we say in the faith, it's a noun rather than a verb, right? We can have faith, but standing in the faith means standing in the truth of the gospel. In the book of Jude, verse 3, it says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. There's no new revelation. It's the faith that was handed down once for all and we're to contend earnestly. Now, David Gusick, a great Bible commentator, commentator, put it into four ways that, that he thinks that God's telling us to stand fast. And I like this a lot. And he gives a scripture for each one. You might want to jot these down and look at them later. But he says, Paul warns Christians to stand fast in their liberty. And that's Galatians 5, one, And what he was talking about there was because there were people that were trying to take the freedom of the new covenant away from them, and put them back into Judaism. And so he says, part of standing fast is let's not get into legalism. So let's stand fast in the liberty that God has given us. Number two, he says, we're to stand fast in Christian unity. And you can look at Philippians 1.27. We're to stand fast in Christian unity, and that's that's a tough one today. Where does that unity center around? Not everybody's opinions. It centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're all unified in one thing, and that's to get the true gospel out to the world, there's going to be unity. I, I remember back in the early 70s. When the Jesus movement really began, and, you know, it may seem silly, but there were certain things that were done. A lot of us had bumper stickers, honk if you love Jesus. And young people have no idea about this, but some of the rest of you do. So you'd be driving along, and beep, beep, and at first you thought, who is that? And you oh, they're going one way to me. Oh, sorry, yeah, one way, one way. And you know what? We didn't sit and think about, well, did they go to First Baptist instead of Calvary Chapel? You know, no, it was there was unity, why? Because the gospel had been i don't even know how to describe it. it had been not preached for so long that we were just excited to find another Christian who was out there going, "Jesus loves you, man, get to know Jesus, get saved, turn from your sin." So there was Christian unity all centered around the gospel of Christ, and then Uh, David Guzik says, if you look at Philippians 4.1, you see that standing fast in the Lord himself. In other words, your personal relationship with him. Don't get away from that. Don't get so caught up in in books and all these other things, but in your personal time with the Lord. We need to stand fast in that. Oh, man, that's so true. Don't get away from that personal time with the Lord. In the Lord himself, we stand fast. And then lastly, he says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, in the teaching of the apostles, which is what we have now, it's the scriptures. Stand fast in the entire word of God. The entire word of God. So that was the second one. Thirdly, all right, here we go. Act like men. And you women are going, what, are we supposed to, after dinner, burp a little bit and turn a football game on? I mean, act like men. Well, I thought that was funnier than that, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, what, what is Paul saying here? And it's really quite simple. He, he's not really saying just man. What it, the word itself in Greek means a man or husband, but it really means to behave with the wisdom of a grown-up rather than a child. It, it's really talking about maturity. So we're, we're to be mature as Christians, not act like children. Remember... Paul said, when I was a child, I, you know, I acted like a child, but now I'm grown, and that's what we're supposed to do. The fourth one, be strong. Now, this word in Greek um, means, it, it can mean to be strong, or it can be to make strong, or to strengthen, uh, to increase in strength, or grow strong. It has all of those, those meanings, and Scripture is full of this. I'm just going to give you a few, maybe just jot these down and look at them to remind you. But Psalm 27, 14, all the way back in the Psalms. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Ephesians 3, 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. And then Ephesians 6.10, again, write these down if you want. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then 2 Timothy 2.1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And there are way too many verses on be strong, grow strong, all of these things, way too many verses for us to list here, but... I think if you look back again and just in the last couple, you know, through his spirit, the power of his spirit, strength of his might in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, the key factor is this. He's not saying be strong because we, you know, pull your bootstraps up and be strong, get in the weight room. Come on, spiritual weight room. No, what, what he's saying is that that strength comes in your relationship with Christ. All of your strength comes through your relationship with Christ. We know that the New Testament teaches. And when we're weak, He is strong. So really what it's telling us is just spend more time with Jesus and allow Him to give you that strength you need to accomplish that, what He's called you to do. And again, these are four commands, military terms, things that, you know, these aren't just suggestions. These are things that we are to do by Paul's spiritual authority. Now, verse 14, and again, this is the the theme verse for this two-part series, but really the theme for for all 1 Corinthians, I think. We, We often just call 1 Corinthians, you know, because of chapter 13 and these verses, the book about love, and I think that that's true. Verse 14 puts it this way. Let all that you do be done in love. Okay? This is this. Another command that we have. And I have to be really honest with you. I look at those other commands, standing fast and those kind of things. And yeah, I can do that. I'm good with there. And then I look at this one. Let all that you do be done in love. And as I was studying, you know, and I read this, you know, I start jumping into all my Greek dictionaries. And I'm desperately searching for some wiggle room. I'm desperately searching for something that says, well, almost everything do in love, but sometimes do it because you're mad. Sometimes do it because you just really feel like doing it. All things in love. And I'm I'm looking at all these Greek dictionaries, and the word in Greek is pas, P-A-S, and I'm going to just read you these. Here's Strong's. All, any, every, the whole, whatsoever, whole, whosoever. Thayer says, each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, everything. Zodahati is one of my favorite Greek scholars, says, all. <laughs> That's it? The definition of all is all? There's no way around this? Because, Lord, I don't always do everything in love. There are times when my motivation is very selfish. I don't want it to be. I want it to all be in love. And Paul has already told us all the way back in chapter 13 that agape love is the more excellent way. He's telling us that love is above everything else, that love is supreme, and that anything we do must be done in love. Now, again, when we speak about love, it's hard in in the culture we live in today because we need to make sure that we're using the biblical model, the biblical picture, the biblical definition of love. Because in society, in our culture, we do not have a clue of what true love really is. And that's why we can be called haters. Because the world doesn't understand what true love, what biblical love really is. And what's interesting about this, I want you to think about this, throughout this whole chapter we've been reading here, Paul is demonstrating exactly what he's telling us to do. If you look back at what we've even covered this morning um, or or in last week, he gave instructions about bringing this gift to Jerusalem, right? To the poorer saints in the church. Why? Out of love. We're going to help them out because we love them. We see that Paul wants to spend time with These Corinthians. He doesn't want to just go in and then take off. He wants to be there with them. Why? Because he loves them. He's doing it out of his love for them, true love. And then he stays in Ephesus because of his love even for non believers. He loves those non believers so much, he wants to see them get saved. And so he stays there. Then he prepares the people for the arrival of Timothy, as we mentioned earlier, to make sure that they received him in a proper fashion. Why? Because he loves Timothy. Then he encourages Apollos to go back to Corinth, because he loves the people of that church, and he knows Apollos is a good teacher. He can really bless them if he comes back to Corinth. And rather than being jealous of the eloquence that Apollos has, and Paul didn't consider himself eloquent... He shows Apollos this respect and, and confidence in his ability to help people by, the, by his teaching. Why? Because he loves Apollos and he loves Corinth. and He loves the church there. So Paul has given us a full and complete example. And I love this about Paul. He never teaches you anything that you don't look at his life and go, well, yeah. When he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we can look at him and go, yeah, I would like to be like Paul because he is like Christ. And then in chapter 13, he gives us this word picture of what love is. And I always say agape, and I think you should have that ingrained in your mind because it'll help you distinguish between what the culture says is love and what we know is Christian love. It's agape love, love that doesn't need anything in return, but gives according to the power of God. And we need to know that it's that love that's our motivation for what we do. Not like the world that says, I'll love you if you love me first or give me back. You know, my wife and I were (laughs) were talking to some friends of ours from Living Truth who were at our house on Friday night and Saturday came up and stayed with us and I don't even know how we got on the on the topic here, but it had to do with some movies and I'm like, you know, these guys aren't twenty years old. They're they have grown kids and some of these you're talking about, they they didn't have any any clue, but There is a whole generation that grew up, there are two different lines about love that a generation grew up with. Some of you older folks are going to know what I'm talking about. One is, and Brenda already, love means never having to say you're sorry. And, I mean, this caught on from this movie called Love Story because it was a tear-jerking movie. And, you know, people actually thought, yeah, that's right, that's right. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Good luck in your marriage if you never say you're sorry. Are you kidding me? But people bought into this. And there was another one that was even worse from a famous song from a group who's probably one of the the greatest singing groups ever, a group called Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And one of their big hits was Love the One You're With. So if you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with, then you know what their definition of love was. Okay? And people bought into this. This is, yeah. And are we suffering the consequences from that theory today? Yes, we are. So we need to make sure that we have a biblical definition of love. And that's in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Listen, those verses... Should be read and reread as much as any passage in the Bible. Because you need to know those verses to understand, in any given situation, what is the loving thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? Uh, we get that question on the Bible Answer Show all the time. I'm, I'm facing this situation, and I want to know what's the loving thing to do. I, one of my children is living with their, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever it may be, and how how do I deal with that? Do I let them come to my house? Do Do I let them sleep together in my house? What's the loving thing to do? Well, we don't want to break off our relationship with them. And so we look at all the things that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. We go, well, love's patient, love's kind, love believes, it bears all things, but... Love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. You see, you can't just take one of those aspects of love and say, okay, I'm going to apply this here. No, you need to take all of those verses in their totality and use that to guide you as to what you need to do. Well, Paul's going to conclude this Pretty lengthy letter that he's written, 16 chapters, and I'm so thankful that you guys have hung in there and uh, through this whole uh, book and learned what you've learned. And he's going to conclude it now, and he does it as Paul always does in a very personal way. And he says in verse 19, The churches of Asia greet you, uh, Aquila and Prissa, short for Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Just a side note there to realize that most of the churches were in houses at that time. And this couple had a home church. Take that for what it's worth. And then he says, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if you don't know how to do that, I'm sorry, but, but Paul Hicks is at the men's retreat, so he can't demonstrate to you this morning. But catch him next week, and he will demonstrate proper technique for a, a holy kiss. In verse 22, if anyone, this is interesting because right in the middle of this wonderful warm greeting, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. <laughs> and then he, and he's kind of goodbye. Maranatha. <laughs> That's a great way to leave a church, isn't it? And I'm not sure why Paul did it that way. Um, but I will say this. Uh, the word there is very interesting because generally when we see that word, we're going to see agape. But in this case, it's not. It's the word phile or phileo, which is brotherly love, familial love. And so what I think Paul is doing is here, He, in a sense, he wants to weed out people who think they love the Lord. But he uses this term in particular to, to go, look... This love for the Lord that, that you have, if you don't want to be accursed, if you want to make sure you're saved, there is an aspect to this love that's familial, that's intimate, that's so close. It's like, it's like a brother. It's like a family member. And, and he's saying, you know, if, if you don't have that, if you're just talking a good game and don't have that true intimate relationship with Christ, you know, you're not saved. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about so many people in the churches. And I would love to share that with them. Look, if it's not intimate enough that, that you would do anything for Christ, you've got to ask yourself, are, are you really there? Did you really give your life to Christ? If you don't see any fruit in your life, if you don't see any change in your life, you need to at least ask that question because really Paul is just doing this because he doesn't want anybody to be fooling themselves. He doesn't want them to be sitting in church week after week thinking they're saved when they're not. And I think that's why he puts this in there. And and then he says, and we say Maranatha, but it's really Maranatha. And it really means, "Oh Lord, come. And, you know, we've kind of gotten away from that a little bit. You know, a lot of people are like, yeah, well, I said that in the 70s, and look, here I am still. Well, praise God, he's still got work for you to do. Otherwise, he'd have taken you out, man. So it's good for us to say, Oh Lord, come. And then it's good for us to say, But Lord, as long as you have me here, help me to do what you want me to do. Let me follow the calling that you've given to me. And a big part of that calling is having that intimate love relationship with him. The last verse he closes with, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And notice, isn't this amazing, in this, what we call love book, Paul says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And so again, Paul gives us a personal demonstration of what he's taught us. And again, why do we study these ancient letters? Because these ancient letters are inspired by God himself to teach us and to bring us principles in our life that God wants us to live by, remember, not in our own strength, but in the power of His Holy Spirit who gives us strength to follow His commands. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you that um, you gave Paul all these things to share with us because you knew that they needed them back 2,000 years ago and that we need them today and that with every line in this word you teach us more about who you are and help us to come into that intimate relationship with you and so we're so thankful lord for your word we're so thankful that here it's so easy to get access to your word and we should never lord ever take that for granted And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that as I was speaking about the true and clear gospel, Lord, that we were sinners rebelling against you who created us, Lord, and yet, Jesus, you came, God in the flesh, and gave your life for us so that we could come into relationship with you and spend eternity with you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't received you, as their Savior, as their Lord. I pray that this morning would be their morning, that you would be speaking to them right now. And and if that's you this morning, and you realize I'm not saved, I've never turned from my sin and given my life completely over to Jesus, then you can do that right now. It doesn't take days or weeks. It takes one moment of sincerity in your heart of a desire to follow Jesus, to give your life to him. And you could just say a prayer this morning, something like this. Jesus, I thank you that you came and died to save me from my sin. I believe that you did that. And I want to put my trust in you this morning. I want to give my life over to you. I want to have this intimate relationship with you that I've been hearing about. And I want to place myself under some church leadership that could help me grow in that, Lord. And so I do that right now, Lord. I give my life to you, and I thank you for that in Jesus' name. And if you said that prayer, then God is looking down at you, and we're looking at you as a member of the family. And, Lord, for all the rest of these awesome people here at Living Truth that you know how much uh, my wife and I love and are so thankful that you allow us to come back here and to spend time with them, continue, Lord, to work in their lives and their hearts and, and that they may continue to grow in you, Lord. I, I often say that they'll continue to serve you, Lord, but the truth is we continue to serve you with joy uh, in our hearts. The more we spend time with you, the more intimate we are in our relationship with you and allow you to do that work in us, then it just naturally flows from that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask, Lord, that you would continue to um, just bless each person here this morning. And we'll give you praise and glory, Lord, for all that you do in all of our lives. In Jesus' name.